0: Hi everyone, this is Christian Kuhn. Before we get into my latest episode, I wanted to let you know that I'll be taking the next month off or so to gear up for the next season of Failing Boldly. I've been for the most part putting this out on the second and fourth Thursdays, though of course this one is a little late. I really do enjoy this podcast and putting it together. One of the challenges is the production of it. So one of the things I'll be doing in the next few weeks is hiring someone to help me put it out there. And if I'm able to do that, it will come out on a much more regular basis of every other Thursday. As a way to pull that off, I'm going to be doing a very intentional Patreon campaign, and my goal is to have to get 100 listeners committing just $1 a month, and that will go a long way in me being able to hire somebody. So if you know me, or you subscribe to this podcast via Podbean, you'll probably be getting a message from me soon. The next episode will be coming to you on July 9th. Okay, here's my conversation with David Bailey. Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn, and my guest this week is David Bailey. David is the founder of Erebon, an organization that helps Christian leaders and communities engage in the work of racial reconciliation and culture creation. Out of this work has come two additional musical ministries called Urban Doxology and the Porter's Gate Worship Project. I reached out to David several weeks ago and was pleased when he accepted and it so happened that we scheduled our conversation for last Wednesday in the midst of the overwhelming responses to George Floyd's murder. David reflected on all of this in addition to the challenge of multicultural mystery, racial reconciliation, and the importance of cultural artifacts. I hope you enjoy it. Well, David Bailey, thank you so much for being on the Failing Boldly podcast.
1: Hey, man, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I like the name of um, uh, the podcast and your book because that's the story of my life, Failed Boldly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, before we jump in, I just want to check in with you and the Airborne community these last few days and um, uh, and just see how you're doing.
1: That's a good question, man. Thanks for asking, man. I, you know, um, <clears throat> man, it's, we're tired. I mean, it's just very tiring um, when situations like this um Uh, happen, the kind of demand um, and inquiry for our ministry and the phone calls, the text messages, the emails increased like crazy. I'm sure. And uh, so the team is, you know, just trying to, everybody's trying to do their part. And, um, uh, but, you know, I think God's grace is bringing us through. Um, But I think it feels different because of the pandemic, right? Like because of being shelter in place and having to rethink the the, how to do ministry, how to like everything. And then you got this on top of it. It's, it it definitely feels different. Uh, So just trying to take care of myself and and my wife definitely makes sure that I take care of myself. So that's good.
0: I was just going to ask you that. I would imagine it's a struggle for you both to be a leader uh, and to be out front and respond to what people are saying or asking of you, but then also going through your own grieving and lamenting. And how are you able to balance both of those?
1: Well, I mean, I think, I mean, one of the things you'll hear me talk a lot about is like, um, Reconciliation, the spiritual formation. And um and I know a lot of times when you talk about race and reconciliation, um, you put those words together. Um there's a lot of connotations to it, but but just whatever you think it what I mean by that, toss that out. You know, but like <laughs> but what I do really mean is just the, the 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 invitation of Christ to uh reconciling all things and for us to partner with the brokenness in the world. That's a very deeply spiritual act. So one of the things that we really endeavor to do is to um, practice from the spiritual aspect of this, you know? And uh, so I try to rest and try to take care of myself. Um, I don't usually do a lot of social media and media consumption. I find Mm -hmm. my soul get a lot really dark um, in those spaces and it's really hard to continue and to do this work. So because we're trying to run the marathon of this, this, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I heard. Um, a sister by the name of joel saxton said we 're not trying to prepare for a moment we 're pre- trying to prepare for for um for a marathon you know mm-hmm. and so there's since i 'm doing marathon preparation i 'm not just like consuming a lot of media yeah. and really trying to take care of myself and make sure that my team takes care of ourselves and and uh, do this for the long haul. so so that 's how we try to do it at least
0: okay well, it, as a way of getting into talking about Arabon I guess I do want to talk about a little bit of social media that you did engage with a few days ago yeah. on your Twitter feed, you you tweeted out this really powerful video, uh, and I don't know the context of it as far as where it was, but it was yeah. of a 45 year old black man engaging with a 31 year old black man, and they're talking. I don't know if they're I wouldn't wouldn't describe it as yelling at each other, but their voices are pretty loud, and yeah. they're both, clearly they're both frustrated. And the 31 yeah. year old then turns to a 16 year old black teenager. And essentially says you've gotta do better that yeah. we have tried at this and, and it's not working, so I'm curious as to why you tweeted that out what and what did it how did that video affect you that you felt like I want others to see this
1: yeah I mean actually the the, the video like uh actually brought me to tears you know um it's because um I mean. That story, like that, those three generations can yeah. go from nineteen to hundred to, you know, I mean, like, pick whatever decade you want to do. My dad, I don't have children, but if I had children, I mean, as a matter of fact, I'm, I, I was in a text change with my college friends, and they were like, "How do we have this conversation with our kids?" You know, like, like, and it's really interesting because, like, my group of college friends, we are some of the most generationally kind of privileged group of black people and we still have to have this conversation Mm -hmm. with our kids. And, you know, I remember it hit me years ago, maybe like 2010. The last time I was stopped by the police, I was at a conference, you know, talking about multi-ethnic churches in San Diego and I got searched for drugs, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think kind of the promise for me as a, you know, I grew up in a stable black middle-class working middle class with middle class family and it was like hey you know you go to school you do what you got to do you don't have to deal with the riffraff Mm -hmm. but then i just found out that that promise was broken it doesn't matter how educated i am it doesn't matter how whatever the case is uh i'm i can most of the time be pretty decent if i get a chance to talk but sometimes you don't get a chance to talk yeah and so to see I think the forty five year old guy was just like enraged and you got the thirty one year old guy trying to be like, yo, we can't join because this is one thing that's really important to understand. A lot of this vandalism that's going on right now, these are like white folks, man. Like these <laughs> ain't like these are black folks saying like, yo, we ain't trying to be doing this, you know? Yeah. Um but but yes, there are like black folks that might like, you know, engage in this. And so this forty five year old like, man, I, I I just can't do it anymore. Like I'm yeah. I'm enraged and, you know, I'm ready to throw this brick or whatever the case may be. And he's like, yo, I get you. But, yo, we can't do this because, you know, like uh, Michael Eric Dyson says, if white America gets a cold, uh, black folks get amnesia. Mm-hmm. You know, if if, mm-hmm. if white America throws a brick into the window, um, black folks get real bullets and, 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 and maced and like all of those kind of tear grassed on them, you know. And so you got this 16-year-old kid who when you're a young kid like that, you don't have those reasoning faculties. Yeah. You just know how you feel in your gut, man, and he's just like, "Yo, you got to do better," you know? And Yeah, man, I mean it's it's the real deal, bro. It's just it's the real deal, you know? So that that's why I was just like that complexity to be able to see that, I just felt like it was good to share.
0: And it was all, it was just completely raw. I mean, Yeah, unfiltered. Yep.
1: And that's what I think. I think like I have a gift and a grace to make things palatable for people to kind of shepherd people along. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it's real important for folks to get kind of the rawness of this thing. Like this, yeah. this isn't always packaged up, you know. And like,
0: um, I think it's not a TED music- talk is as, as, as yeah, done.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not always like a TED talk, you know. And I think and I think there's roles for TED talks, but I think there's also roles for just sure. unfiltered rage and anger. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, can you? Let's talk about Airborne a little bit and and maybe it, it stems from your own uh, upbringing. Did you grow up in the Richmond area?
1: Been in Richmond my whole life, man. I okay. spent a few weeks in recording school, but I literally got my degree here, raised here, born and raised. Um And kind of the story of Airbon is my parents were really involved with our urban-suburban partnership. We we grew up in the suburb, like a working class suburb, but our church was in the inner city, like literally in the housing projects, in a community center, in a housing project. And um, you know, I, when I was in the suburbs, my racial ethnic minority, when I'm in a city, I am a economic minority, but kind of with a little bit more power and influence, you know, and it was like the Cosby kids going to church in the hood. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we really didn't have like, well, my parents were like, mom was a teacher, my dad sold insurance and real estate. And so it was a very kind of like, he was an entrepreneur. And, and so it was a very, we just had like a very stable kind of shelter food situation but when you are with like your friends are literally cash cashing housing projects it's it's like the world of a difference feels very different uh well when you're a kid you don't really understand that you know um but you just treat people like hey you know as friends and, and folks with one another um i started playing music and doing gigs and it opened my world up also to like playing at country clubs and so in college, I would play Friday night at the country club. Saturday, night I might do like an outreach ministry with my uh, at my inner city church. Um, Saturday night, I would like do maybe like a jazz club that had like black folks who were like you know, um, the kind of like middle class jazz kind of uh, poetry jams type of spot. Um, I maybe do like a Presbyterian church for nine eleven o'clock service. My Pentecostal church is at one o'clock. And then uh, I would do at five o'clock, I would do an evening service with um, international folks, that, a, a church led by a pastor from India wow. that was for like people of like 30 different languages spoken in there. And like in that space, I realized like there are different type. You become a cultural anthropologist, you know, yeah. and to be able to connect with these different folks is a skill set you end up developing. And my wife was like, yo, we were married about a couple of years. She said, hey, you got this gift of being able to bring people together different generations, economic backgrounds, education levels, races, ethnicities, you start writing and teaching about it. And that was about 2008, and that's how AirBond got started. And we've been going ever since. How old were you when it started? That's a good question. Uh,
0: 2008? I was 27, yeah. Wow. Yeah. amazing. Did you – so partly it's – well, I guess I'll let you explain kind of some of the things that Aaron does because I first found out about Aaron through listening to some music from Porter's Gate, and then that took oh, me okay. to Urban Doxology, and gotcha. then that took me to Aaron. So yeah. it's multifaceted. Yeah. It's like an understatement. So tell me a little bit about your vision for Aaron, and then did you have the music component from the beginning, or did yeah, that develop? So the,
1: yeah. Yeah. So the music part actually started. I mean, I worked as a professional musician, particularly as a producer, music director. So that part, was very hand in hand at the very beginning. But then another part of the story is in 2008, we also helped plant a church with a group of folks. And uh, and so then kind of my personal life experience, I ended up having this like, social science experience experiment mm-hmm. with this church and it become this church becomes like a laboratory called Eastern fellowship. And so we had this vision of doing reconciliation, not just among race, but also class and not just mentioning two poor people, but with poor brothers and sisters. And it was really hard to do. Like, I mean, like the actual practice of this stuff is really hard, but very formative. Mm-hmm. And so the more that we started doing teachings and developing resources for our local church, um, these became pastoral like, responses that became the seeds of the Urban Oxology songwriting internship, where we get young people eighteen to twenty-five to write songs that are about theology, um, that are not just horizontal, but for, not just vertical, but also horizontal, and to kind of uh, prepare us for the type of urban ministry that we were doing. Uh, but it also did some leadership development, and that eventually became the Urban Oxology band. And so they are, uh, you know, were on the Porter album. And then uh, I just kept on doing a lot of teaching. And particularly like when you are doing music pretty well, people are like, oh, I know what we need to do in order to do Reconciliation World. Let's just get a really great multicultural band. And you still got white supremacy running in this multicultural church, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I realized it was really important to uh, kind of do a lot of teaching and training and, and you know, teaching gifts or gifts that I had. So around 2015, actually in Chicago, um, I did my last kind of professional gig. I was like, man, I can't keep up with being a speaker. I can't keep mm-hmm. up with running an organization and being an excellent professional musician. So I, I retired that. Um, any kind of musical um, thing I do today has to do with just kind of like spurring on urban oxology and and what they do. So our ministry has kind of we most of the work I spend on my time, man. Eighty percent of my work is with training consulting with institutions. Okay. And we have a team that works on that. We have a team that does urban oxology uh, band and they go around and, and produce songs and music and uh, um, lead worship and do kind of like formational liturgy in areas of justice, Jesus, justice, and reconciliation. And then um, the urban oxology songwriting internship is a leadership development program that, helps to shape the imagination for the church in Jesus justice and reconciliation. And, um, urban outside just sings a lot of those songs and we produce those things. So we like, we just released a song recently called God not guns, which is like a lament, um, out of Psalms 10. And so these are just the type we're trying to write the things that the music industry doesn't write, but is needed for the church.
0: So would you say, is there a typical institution and or church that approaches Araban? Uh, and, and, and I would imagine maybe I'm wrong, but you you might be getting a lot more, um, institutions now coming to you, the whole notion of anti-racism and a a lot of them are kind of like, what do we do? Where do we start? Yeah. And so I guess pre the last few days, we'll see how it goes for you in, in future years. But would you say those have been mainly white institutions coming to you just kind of asking for that consultation?
1: Yeah. I mean, it would definitely be more white institutions. Um. For from an institutional standpoint, like help us to understand race, help us understand what we could do. I think for people of color, I do, we do get a lot of um, people of color who are in these spaces of like, hey, help us figure out kind of how to shepherd our own people with this mm-hmm. kind of like pain. Mm-hmm. And because and, and, because one of the things that we do is the way that we disciple white people, and the way that we disciple people of color are very different. And even kind of within different types of people of color like the way that Hispanic, Black, Asian, Middle Eastern, like the type of things you have to wrestle with are different. So there's some things that are shared as a person of color in America, but then um, there's some breakout different stuff that, you know, and we, we we know how to like stay in our lane, you know, there's a certain level of depth that I, I don't understand the Hispanic experience, because that's not my experience, you know, mm-hmm. but I, you know, um, we do try to, uh, how do I say it? Um, you know, try try to make pathways and resources for um, kind of everybody in the conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the ways that you do that in some of the conversations that it seems like that Erebon does, and then I've the, mentioned the TED Talk earlier, really great. I mean, it's only, what, eight or nine minutes or so. Yeah, means, yeah. Really interesting and powerful conversation about for communities creating culture and specifically cultural artifacts. Yeah, And so I'm wondering if you could pick up on the cultural artifacts and explain for those who are listening, what that means to you and and why that's so important in reconciliation work.
1: Yeah. So one of the ways to think about this is that we're here today because of the culture that was made yesterday,
0: because of the leadership
1: of yesterday and the culture that the leaders made yesterday. And so we, a lot of times when people start talking about reconciliation, justice, like all these type of things they say like, Hey, we need to have better conversations like, like we feel like it's like, it's, it's a lack of knowledge. Like if we knew better, we mm. would do do better. And that's not necessarily true. Right. Like, um, you know, you, you know, you think about children, right? I mean, and children become adults and children, they can know better, but not so they do better. <laughs> you know, like, and adults uh, can know better, but not do better. Mm. So it's not just knowledge at all, but sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. So so, so we try to give a little bit of shared knowledge, shared language so we can get a shared vision. But then once you have a shared vision, you have to ha- actually have strategies and tactics to implement that vision. And, you know, if there's a philanthropist that says, hey, David, can you consult with me on what to do in this issue of race? Give me a call. But, like, I would definitely say, um, if you got 80% of it really should be like 20% should be on education and kind of helping people to have some good thinking to move towards good practice. But 80% of it should be on culture making
0: hmm.
1: because you think about like, we are here today because of the culture that was made yesterday. So you think about like the iPhone, you know, like they created something that has literally changed society. It changes the way we engage with people. Cause we tend to be like this. It changes Uh, um, even like the ability, like uh, um, the treatment of black people has been going on for centuries, but the iPhone or whatever uh, um, the video phone, camera phone has allowed people to be able to capture it, to see it. Mm -hmm. And that is changing culture. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Business leaders are changing culture, you know, Um, and musicians and artists and the stories that we tell, you know, change culture. And so that's one of the things that we're always ultimately like our training helps to kind of, Hey, let's get some shared knowledge of like when language so that you can develop some strategies, some tactics and these tactics need to turn into like tangible things. Helping to helping the shape culture the way you did. The way that you engage in your church, the way you engage with your family, the, thing that you, the way that you do your work, the type of things that you make, these are the things that matter. And so if you could think through a reconciliation lens, through a like, healing the broken, brokenness lens, through a justice-oriented lens, then uh, that is very generative and the types of things that can help us to move us forward as a country.
0: So in the Ted talk, it seemed, well, certainly you talk about Monument Avenue in Richmond yep, uh, and then, but it seems like one of the cultural artifacts that you lift up in the Ted talk is, is music and songs yeah. yep. that, that you create. So could you see a bit more about the power of, of artifacts?
1: Yeah. So like, you know, particularly, I mean, in a worship space, right? Like um, well, just, just in general, if you want to understand somebody's theology or philosophy, or their, their worldview, you need to listen to their songs. Mm. You know, like, and it's just one of the things that I realized kind of in our church is that, you know, we could preach all these things about justice and uh, uh, reconciliation, but if our songs are only personal about us and God, and it's about Jesus dying for our sins and everything's like good with the world, and that's like kind of what our lyrics say. Yeah, yeah. And it's not acknowledging that there's a horizontal dimension to our faith, then people's relationship with uh, an understanding of faith is only going to be vertical and not horizontal. And so, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not a Methodist. And so, you know, um, John and Charles Wesley, they got this, you know, mm-hmm. they understood this. And so they've been a heavy influence in my life. And so I realized people's theology isn't just what's passively preached to them, but it's really what they actively sing. And so we work really hard to make sure that we're giving really theologically rich songs uh, to put on people's mouths.
0: And I think sometimes, in some of the work that I've done around anti racism in recent years that has been eye opening for me and i correct me if I'm wrong, I think this probably belongs in the culture artifact um category is and I think white people especially underestimate not just music and songs and what that says about their theology and who they are, but the literal space where they're gathering yeah and and it's not just white jesus in the stained glass window but it's the whole concept of what the space is and how it feels and is it welcoming to people of color and i think for a lot of white people that's it's this is a podcast about failure that's a real failure for them to not take into consideration what that space is and i guess what and so would you call all of that kind of cultural artifacts
1: yeah totally yeah i mean yeah you're right it's not just the it's not the songs that you sing, but it's the way that you greet. Like what's considered hospitality. Mm. This is like, we use a term called cultural intelligence. Um, you know, David Livermore coined that phrase. And, um, what we try to do is increase the cultural intelligence of these institutions so that you could realize that like, there isn't just a particular way of being hospitable. There isn't just a particular way of, um, of greeting people or what's honorable or what's dishonorable, you know, and, and, and one of the things that's really, uh, I heard, I heard to say this way, I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't fish cause that's what they're swimming in. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, and I think this is one of the things that's really challenging for white people right now, is that there's a lot of shame coming up because white people are coming to a, uh, a lot of white people are coming to a deeper understanding of what it does it mean to be white and what mm-hmm. white supremacy means and like what's what is white supremacy and what the benefits of being white and the type of things that you don't have to deal with as a white person and so without that kind of being dealt with properly spiritually and cognitively this could lead towards um, feelings of shame and um, paralyzation and even mm-hmm. you know grief and depression um and even sometimes anger you know denial and anger and so you got to kind of help people to to process through that but then also once they see it they can't unsee it and when you see it mm-hmm. then you can become a lot more hospitable you can be a lot more collaborative you can be a lot more generative and engage in uh on the healing that we need
0: it seems like especially for white churches white individuals People who are responsible for generally white systems that cultural artifacts is a is a good entry point, yeah uh, rather than it can be overwhelming to really when you talk about systemic racism uh and I appreciate what you said about just being paralyzed i like, I don't know where to begin, and so maybe they feel like i'm it's not worth it, yeah but by going to artifacts first that's an entry point for them yeah. to at least begin to explore that. would you say that's true
1: yeah, I think so yeah and i and I would also say I think particularly like if you find yourself to be a progressive christian um it, There's, like, a lot. sometimes white progressive folks, like, white supremacy can look two different ways. One could be, like, a conservative version where it's indifference. Mm. And there could be, like, a progressive or liberal version that's paternalism. Mm. And so it's important to, like, say, like, hey, well, you can kind of engage. Like, one is if you move from, like, indifference to your heart and you're engaged, you want to do something don't do the same thing. Don't go to the next level of like, okay, so let me do this for you, but really let me do this with you. Right. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, whether you're indifferent or you're paternal, it's still white people in charge. Right. Yeah. And, and part of what we have to learn how to do as people is like, we've just been in a really bad um, for centuries. We've just been in a bad habit, you know, in a, in a bad practice. Um, And so, we need to learn how to do something different and and working together collaborative and doing cross-cultural collaborations and engaging engaging and reconciling culture making is a really important way to do that.
0: Do you have any chance? You may not have one right off the top of your head, but I'm wondering, um, I, I, again, I'm thinking of for progressive uh, progressive white person. And when you mentioned that can be paternalistic and they may not know exactly what that is. And so I'm wondering if you have a specific example, either that you have experienced or that you have witnessed that you could just kind of mention so that people kind of get a sense of what that means.
1: Well, I mean, I think like some of it, like you think about, think about any justice oriented white, uh, progressive justice oriented uh, organization. How many of them One, the actual people that they serve tend to be people of color, right? Mm-hmm. How many of them after, let's just say the first five years, maybe you might not have any leadership, maybe the 10 years, 20, 30, even 40 years and you still don't have people of color that you're serving being the ones that are also leading the organization. Mm -hmm. Like the tell the end goal of that isn't to actually have equality. The end goal of that is to continue to have white people doing something that makes them feel important, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not that they haven't done good work for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They have been doing it. They've just done it in a way that doesn't have folks just working side by side with them, yeah. and so then for me as a person of color who comes in and has high identifying as a person as a, as African American, that is not in in a, a need or a dependence on uh, a white relationship. A lot of progressive white people don't know how to relate to me as a as a peer. Hmm. even at, and sometimes it could even be the case as a person that they are submitted to but i ain't even ask for all that i'm just trying to ask for like hey let's be co-laborers in this space and that that might mean the type of things that you might have to do might look different than things i might have to do but we're still working on this like in true collaboration
0: yeah yeah that's really helpful you mentioned earlier that starting uh, east end fellowship and so i'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that especially you said this both in the TED talk and you said it here in our conversation about how hard multicultural ministry is. Oh gosh.
1: Yeah. And
0: I think, I think that, I think a failure of, of churches and denominations is it's very much the ideal. That's, that's what people want, but they don't have any, they have no idea how challenging it is. And I've, I've heard that and um, told, you know, many times. So if you could say a little bit about that and just what are the challenges of, of really wanting to do multicultural ministry?
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's this sociological term called a homogenous unit principle. And so in the homogenous unit principle, it says like basically homogeneity means similar like parts. Mm. And so what a lot of church planners do is say, hey, if you find people that have like this particular demographic uh, that are like similar and you make sure they're preaching the music and the children's ministry fits for this particular demographic that you could pretty much grow your church pretty, pretty big and or, or faster. And a lot of it's just because of the fact they're like, Hey, you know, I don't have to like your illustrations of what you think is good preaching. You know, we don't have to debate about that. You know, what you think is good music. We don't have to debate about that. Or like how you raise your children or what you think is appropriate for children to do. You don't have to debate about that. And so, that makes it a lot easier, and those tend to be the most valuable things in American church uh, space. But if you do multicultural, and you say, like, hey, I'm going to honor, like, not multicolored, but literally multicultured. Mm. So we're going to honor different preaching styles. We're going to honor different worship uh, styles. We're going to honor different child rearing spaces and i'm gonna tell you where most multicultural ministries uh tend to blow up is over that children's ministry Mm. you know and it tends to also go to white normativity like you know and so like for example white normativity is it's like white folks oftentimes they can just have their kids go all over the place and do whatever they want to do because there's no consequences for white kids going over the place and doing what they want to do my parents couldn't raise me like that Mm. you know um you know white Kids could can can be disrespectful to adults with no consequences. Mm. Black kids and children of color can't do that, and so you end up having these different things. Like, um, you know, sometimes even with scheduling. I mean, one of the big tension on our ideal is it's like, say, for example, preaching. You know, all right, you could preach in between twenty to forty-five minutes, right? Whatever your style is, but if the forty-five-minute preacher is going longer or to an hour, and They've had children's ministry, children's church. Then the people at children's church are like, we should give them time, right? And so they end up dictating what's happening in the worship service. And the black folks are like, you know, they grew up in church, like, why you can't have your kids in church? Like, <laughs> and, and like, why can't you just be a parent during children's time? And they're like, well, this is our time to kind of take a break from being a parent and worship God. And so, <laughs> It's a, it's a cult. It's a big cultural issue. And, you know, oftentimes in most multicultural churches, white, white folks tend to, um, went out on the culture, uh, decisions because it operates by the golden rule. He or she that has a goal makes the rules. Mm. And so, um, uh, yeah, so it's just, it's a unique set of challenges. And it's just hard, man. It just, it just is hard. But I also say when you work at it and you stay at it, I think it's rewarding.
0: So is it still going today? Is it still this? Yeah. Yeah. Still going okay. on today.
1: Yeah, we're just doing the quarantine edition. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> as you reflect on the last few days, uh, this is a big question. I realize, and it's I'm sure way too soon to have any sense of what might come out of this. But would you say, generally speaking, as you as you look, what might come out of what results um, or responses might come out of um, George Floyd's murder and and everything else? Are you generally pessimistic that anything will change, or are you hopeful that there might be some movement? on on change systemic change
1: that's a really good question it's a really good question i i think the role of a christian is to understand how deep sin is mm mm-hmm. And the deeper you understand the depth of sin, the greater you understand the greatness of grace. I also think that there were at a time of grieving and mourning. And those we mourn we, we we mourn with hope because we are people that believe not only in the incarnation but also the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So I think my my hope is like I don't have a lot of hope for the US government. I mean, you know, particularly as a black person, it's like why should I trust the US government? Yeah. Like, you know, like I definitely shouldn't like whether they're Democrat or Republican, they're two sides of the same white supremacy coin, right? Mm-hmm. And um and, and and when I use the word white supremacy, white supremacy is both a mindset, but it's also a system. Sure. And so you can you can participate in the system without having a mindset. And you also could have the mindset and not be a beneficiary of the system. Like, you don't have to have white skin to have a white supremacist mindset. Like, we've been socially conditioned in ways to think about this. And an illustration I oftentimes give is brown versus the boy education when you have those um, – um, black children were presented with a white doll baby and a black doll baby. said, so, which white doll baby is smarter? They say, the white doll baby. Which one's more beautiful? The white doll baby. Which one's better? Than the white doll baby. Which one's uh, dumber? The black doll baby. Which one's ugly? The black doll baby. Which one is bad? The black doll baby. And just in case they were confused, they asked them, hey, which doll baby is like you? And they were like, the black doll baby. Mm. So, These children had a white supremacist mindset. They thought that the white doll baby was better. Why? Because that's what they saw in society, and and that's what society taught them. So if this was true of these black children, why wouldn't this be true of white children? Sure. And why, uh, unless you've kind of had some kind of conversion and some type of deal of confronting with this, whether you're black or a white child, you grow up to be an adult. And unless somebody's changed that, there are things you just think the white doll baby is better. And that's what our country has shaped us in. It's this principality that believes that the white doll baby is better. And that's what white supremacy is. And the system has been set up in that particular type of way where we set these ideals that all men are created equal while the person writing that own slave is an engaged in human trafficking.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So that's been going on for centuries. Do I think George Floyd, Is going to change that? I don't have a lot of faith in the U.S. government. Sure. Um, I do have faith in God working through the church. I do have faith in Jesus. And I really do think that the more Christians can have a revelation Mm. that uh, um this Jesus thing is not just meant for me in my personal life.
0: Mm-mm.
1: It's meant to like transform like transform people to transform society. I think we could do it. i think if if jesus and and, and and somebody's like vocational calling says like, Hey, what's it look like for me to to kind of submit my vocational calling um in a way to just do things like I'm not saying like you don't need to go be a minister actually, I don't want you to go be a minister like if you want to be a lawyer. If, you, if you're a business person, like particularly if you're really a business person, like, cause, cause race is an economic issue. So if you could have Christian business leaders, like think of like if a Chick-fil-A or a Hobby Lobby, um, or, or like, like the next like Facebook or Microsoft or Google, like, and that person was like a Christian or Amazon. It was a Christian that had like redemptive entrepreneurship endeavors. And was thinking through this line and thinking through issues of equity and, and reconciliation as they did their business. I, that's what I have hope for.
0: It, yeah. And not just, <clears throat> as you kind of noted, not just individual salvation, meaning I want to be right. And I want you to be right in your personal yeah. but to see beyond that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's such a key thing. And I, I appreciate your, I think sometimes, and I think, it, again, this is happens sometimes in the progressive church is they get nervous, not only talking about Jesus, but they get nervous talking about sin and they get yeah. nervous talking about evil uh, and I think, especially when it comes to talking about white supremacy we we need to name and reclaim that,
1: yeah, and it's the thing that's really important because I think like the conservative church doesn't they get nervous talking about about sin in a systemic level, right. The progressive church gets nervous about talking sin on a personal level,
0: okay, yeah,
1: and when you really look at the scriptures, it's both, sure. And I actually think it's very dangerous when you begin to do systemic, uh, uh, try to to do work and systemic uh, justice and try, try to address systemic sin, but not pay attention to your own personal sin. Like you you can end up becoming the thing that you despise as a result of not looking at that. And I think that's why it's really important to really understand this is really
0: significant, deep spiritual work. mm mm-hmm. Speaking of that, and you mentioned earlier when I guess I asked how you were doing, I'm curious what what keeps you going. What what helps you be resilient? I mean, it sounds like you try you work really hard on the inner spiritual transformational work, but could you unpack that a little bit more? Like, what are some of the things that you do to kind of help you get up in the in the in the morning and and go about your day?
1: Um. All right. So one is, I mean, I I just try to have a faster life on social media like i just try to be very limited on that um i pay attention to the type of things that i um i watch and listen mm. to um uh i try to sabbath you know like mm. um one day god was like david you know you're doing good with uh, not committing adultery and um uh, uh, uh not killing people but you know, the Sabbath is also my top 10. So mm-hmm. I'm like, <laughs> like, all right, all right, guy, you know, so try to do that. Uh, I'm a big, I love golf. Um, I'm not like super great at golf, but I love working at a playing. It's been good for me mm-hmm. to, um, I, 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 I meet with a, well, I meet with a therapist once a month because like being a public figure and just right in ministry, you're constantly like in front of people and oftentimes presenting the the cocoa best part of like something that's kind of been worked out and all that stuff. And so I have a, both a therapist and, and a guy I've been walking with for 20 years. has been a disciple, like a disciple of mine. I mean, like I'm saying I've been his disciple and slash a spiritual director type of person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got friends that, you know, can appreciate that. I did a TED talk, but don't care. Like they don't read my own press. I don't read their press. And so I try to have people that the people that I, that, think well of me i try that to be the people that like know and touch me and have been in my house and my wife and 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 not you know the person that's you know whatever news article is done or magazine or the kind of presented public aspect of it yeah so so those are things that i i try to do and um and i breathe i I have what i call blackout sessions where I'm not doing translation I'm with people that are like me and we just talking, we being black, we doing what we do. And, uh, and that fills my soul. You know, I got a group of college friends that we try to get together once a year at minimum, but you know, we just talk. I mean, and you know, one guy does stuff for Bill Gates Another guys in an FBI, um, you know, another ones, you know, works for the IRS as a tax lawyer and just very, um, particularly folks in those types of spaces we tend to be the only type only definitely black male in most cases and i wives tend to be only like black women in their space and just to get together and just kind of talk and relate like those things help to build resilience um you know the text message going on was like hey how do you talk to your kids about what's going on right now mm. like, like that's the that's kind of so that's those are the things that kind of helped me to stay at it and lastly i mean i just really i i'm a professional christian so i get paid to do christian stuff but i really try to be a private christian like i really try to be a christian um that whenever you met me um i like i don't i don't have like a like public-facing and private. Like, I don't have a public and a private life, you know, like from a, how I live as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't have to, like, I, I'm not what well, uh, my, my pastor calls a, a car, cl- car Clint Christian, where you <laughs> where you're like, in disguise, and you turn around and be Superman, and you go back <laughs> in disguise, you know? And so, yeah, so I, I really try, anytime I get a sense that, like, hey, you know what? There might be some, like, somebody calling on hypocrisy, or I might be kind of doing a double standard type of deal i try to lean Mm. into try to be faithful
0: yeah thank you for sharing that well i always end these conversations by asking um uh, my guests to share a story of failure from their own life and so uh, this can be um funny it can be serious it can be personal professional it could have happened this morning it could have happened years ago so i'm wondering if you have something you wouldn't mind sharing today
1: that's a good question um Man, I think kind of what helped me to understand reconciliation at a very deep level, and Grace is just my wife. Like, um, you know, I just, like, I'm I'm not naturally a uh, generous person when it comes to um, my just caring for others and personal space and, like, all of that kind of stuff. And I mean, I would definitely count the first five years, first four years of being married as like a, a terrible failure as a husband. Mm. I mean, I didn't cheat on my wife, but I just definitely just wasn't a good, loving, caring person. And my wife is a very, very generous person. My neighbors call her little Oprah, you know, <laughs> and so she's like always. I mean, like I'm telling you, man, you if you sat down and talked with her for like. Twenty thirty minutes, you're gonna tell her stuff that you' never told anybody before, and she's gonna get you on path of healing if you are like in a fetal position crying, but it feels good <laughs> That's you know you had a time talking with her you know and and so she's just very and i'm just not that i'm just mm. I'm just not and so it was just a lot of pain you know and so i two thousand eleven I did a lot of crying, a lot of like we going to therapy and um and just started like a journey and have had to learn how to be a husband, you know, and so uh learn how to be thoughtful and how not to be selfish, you know um and so i you know i don't i don't necessarily i don't think i'm I'm up for any kind of like best husband of the year award by any means, but I'm not as bad as I was fourteen mm. years ago okay. and so um I learned a lot about grace, I learned about a lot about reconciliation uh just through the work that my wife and I put in um in our own marriage,
0: yeah, well, I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for your uh, continued work uh, and continued. Folks can go to Arabon.com uh, or dot org. Yeah. com. Yeah. A-R-R-A-B-O-N dot com.
1: A-R-R-A-B-O-N.com. A-R-R-A-B-O-N.com.
0: Uh, and to, to continue to learn about um, your ministry and other ways that um, they might learn about, about you and the good work you're doing. So, thanks. Th- David, thanks again for your, ta- your time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's this week's episode. Thanks again to David for giving his time for this conversation. To find out more about him and Arabon, again, you can go to Erebon.com. You can also follow David on Twitter at David M. Bailey. If you listened at the very beginning of the podcast, you'll note that I'll be taking a few weeks off from this, but the next one will be July 9th, and I'll be talking with Leslie Jordan, part of the Grammy-nominated group All Sons and Daughters. To find out more about me and my ministry, you can go to ChristianKuhn.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.